Hello, and welcome to the Lakeshore Records podcast, On Cue With. Today, I had the enormous pleasure of speaking with the great Michael Abels, an incredible composer, thinker, and teacher who you've heard on iconic scores such as Get Out, Us, Bad Education, and Alan B. Farrow. We covered a lot of ground, including how Michael found his voice as a composer in multiple genres, his fascinating collaborative process with the great Jordan Peele, gospel horror music and capturing the sound of the African-American voice, how Get Out changed the world forever, scoring for documentary versus film, the nexus of Woody Allen, Gershwin, Mia Farrow, and the sweeping sound of New York, the concept of sonic empathy, Michael's work with the Composer's Diversity Collective, the job of a composer as a quote-unquote musical architect, and much, much more. Michael's phenomenal score for Alan V. Farrow is out now worldwide via Lakeshore Records. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael Abels as much as I did. Hello, Michael. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, We're going to talk about Alan V. Farrow. We're going to jump into that shortly. But first, if you don't mind, um, I'd love for you to give me a little bit of your background what got music into you? Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and your first foray into composition. Well, first of all, Alan, thanks very much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, let's see. I feel like music was always in me. Um, my earliest memories, I think, are of music. Um, um, I just, I, as, a, as a baby, I reacted viscerally to music. Um, I began piano lessons at an early age. I when I was three, I thought that I could play the piano. And uh, I noticed that the sounds were different than, than the songs that I was hearing. And so I asked my grandmother, why, why does it sound different? She says, we have to take lessons. I said, well, that was for me. So at age four, I guess, I started piano lessons. Um, I sang in the uh, Phoenix Boys Choir as a, as a youth. And that's where I learned about singing and about um, performing in a group and about musical excellence, regardless of your age. Um, and I was always interested in how music worked. I thought it was so interesting that somebody made up um, this stuff. And I thought, how do they do that? And I want to try to do that. And I was writing beginning at age eight, and I couldn't figure out how to make my idea work. By about 13, I sort of stuck with it, and I finished something. And then I was hooked. I thought that that was just the most wonderful um, creative puzzle that could both um, challenge your, you know, the, the kind of intellectual part of your mind, but also express your emotion. And the, the two of them together uh, just made it seem to be like it would be a lifelong thing that I would, that I could be passionate about forever. And you said 13, you wrote your first piece. What type of piece was it? Was it? You know, it, well, because I had, I had this very, you know, I was taking lessons in a very traditionally classical way. The first thing I wrote was a piece for piano and orchestra <laughs> without any, I, I knew something about the piano. I knew nothing about the orchestra, but uh, that, but you know, that never lets you, that never stops you as a, as a youth or it shouldn't. Um, and I remember transposing the horn parts into the entirely wrong key because I, <laughs> I got my transposition backwards, which I can still do if I'm not careful and forever dyslexic on whether this is the, I'm encoding or decoding, if you know what I mean. So, but anyway, um, you can tell I was a I was a composer from right out of the gate. <laughs> and and you have also have a background in jazz, bluegrass, and blues, etc. How well, do I like to? I I I love when people. So I, I told you from an early age, I was always fascinated about how that someone wrote this, right? And I was also fascinated by 
the different genres of music because um, I learned from Do Re Mi from Rodgers and Hammerstein that it's just one word for every note by mixing them up, you know, and that that's the DNA of music or at least of Western music. So when I heard different genres, I thought, how can this be true? How can this music that sounds so different be the same? And I had that perspective from just from day one. And so I was always studying other styles of music and, and thinking, why does this sound the way it does? And I was trying, and you never, you never gain so much appreciation for a style of music than if you try to write in that style. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I would write in these styles, these styles of music that I was fascinated by. And in so doing, I think I would learn about them in a way that you don't just from, you know, studying them kind of from out without having to be inside. So I don't, I wasn't trained in other styles of music as much as I was writing in those styles mm-hmm. and trying to emulate, you know, I mean, when I would do pop music, it was Quincy Jones who inspired me most. He was, he's such an amazing producer and who can create any genre of music in, and along with who, whoever he's collaborating with. And that was kind of a model for me of how to do different genres of music. So. It's a bit of um, a double-edged sword, though, right? When you're intrigued by multiple genres, how do you, as they say, find your voice? I, I, and I know you have a very interesting thing to say about this. I've, I've seen in an interview, you mentioned um, global warming mm-hmm. in terms of your finding of your own voice. Would you mind just articulating some of that? Sure. So... Um... And thank you for mentioning this, because I actually think it's crucial to artists is that so I I love to write in different genres. And that's part of what my, you know, every art, every artist has to figure you have to have actually figure out, you know, what, what am I good at? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's deciding that you are an artist or have the soul of an artist is just step one. It's like, you, you have a particular brand and you I tell young artists that, you know, you may not know what your your brand or your art is. And in fact, it's probably better if you don't, because that should be an exploration um, on your, you know, you should look at that as a good thing. And so um, as I was learning about all the great music that had already been done, uh, as I was studying music, I thought, well, what is my, what is it that is, that makes me me? And it was, I thought, you know, my ability and interest in different genres is a thing. And that may be hard to articulate to other people, but that's a thing. And I'm going to, that is my thing. I have to, I have to just go with it. So I wrote this piece called Global Warming, which at the time was not a politically charged thing. It was a, it was 1990. It was just about a scientific observation um, that scientists had had. And no one was saying that it was untrue or anything. Um, It just hadn't gotten the attention it had today. And so Um, But to me, I use that title as a pun, as a way to talk about similarities between music of different cultures that I was hearing, um, Mm -hmm. which was a a cross genre, intergenre, that's not a word, but you know Mm -hmm. what I mean, Um, uh, thing that I thought, hey, this is a great, not only am I interested in this idea, but it's also a thing I would be good at, you know, so that was, I thought, you know, you, you need to write music that expresses who you are but also is a demonstration of what you're good at, which is hopefully the same thing. Mm-hmm. So in the piece of global warming was about um, an intersection of music of different cultures. And, and so in doing that, I managed to fully express myself, but also give people an idea of who I am as an artist. And that was kind of a, 
a benchmark for me in my artistic maturation. Which I think you've managed to very, very brilliantly uh, persist with in terms of your scores. I mean, it's, you know, we're talking about um, orchestral music, essentially, but then there's a, then there's a transition into scoring to picture, which is a whole beast in and of itself. And the fact that you've been able to maintain such a diverse array of genres in all of your scores while scoring to pictures is very impressive to me. What, what sparked your transition into scoring? Well, thank you very much. Uh, I, you know, you, it, it, the, your question makes it sound like it was this very organized plan and <laughs> a lot more about stumbling, <laughs> stumbling into things or really it was, I mean, I had always, I consider all music to be storytelling, mm -hmm. um, whether it's uh, concert music or songwriting or it, it, you pick the genre to me, the essence is storytelling. And it's just about whether the story is one that the audience is, is asked to create in their minds based on their own reactions to the music or whether it's um, one that's presented on a screen or in a story that's very specific and being told to you. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was, that was a natural thing for me to do um, scoring to picture. Um, but it, I, I did TV commercials when I was in college and that was great experience, but I never had any traction in the industry. I, I, I'm one of those people who I feel like can't sell uh, you know, anything to anyone. And it seemed to me that success in doing that had relied a lot on the one's ability to sell oneself. And I have never felt like that. I was good at that, Ooh. but um, Jordan Peele uh, wasn't interested in that. He was listening for someone who could write in a 20th century orchestral concert style, uh, very aggressive and edgy and avant-garde music, but also who understood the, the African-American experience. And so in that sense, he was kind of looking for me. So he, um, I, he made the producers of Get Out hunt me down and call me up. And so I got sent what was to become the Oscar-winning script <laughs> of the following year. I got sent that just cold in the mail <laughs> or, or on email, and I'd never seen or read anything like it. And so even before I met Jordan, I was already a yes. But then after meeting Jordan, I was clearly a yes. And I just thought, I, I'm doing this. I don't care. I, it seems like it'll turn out well, but even if it doesn't, it's the most amazing thing ever. So that's for me. Anyway. That, I was going to ask you, I mean, that you, you sort of telegraphed my next question was, you know, I, I was, I was thinking you're probably one of the first people on earth to actually see get out or some, some iteration of it, mm -hmm. right. As you're working on it. Um, it sounds like you got the script first. Were, how conscious were you, or did you have, did you know this, project was going to change the world I don't think you can ever know that I mean I, I Jordan says quite clearly that he didn't ever think the film was going to be made even though if you look at his if you look at the steps he took to get it made he approached it with just the most um, logical you know entertainment business acumen that you ever could I mean he, he um, but I thought the film would be, I didn't know who would see it. I thought the film at its best would be very polarizing. And, mm -hmm. um, and I just thought that, you know, like you have to come at any project you do from an arts and artistic um, perspective, which is that 
I believe in this. I'm giving it everything that my, that my, you know, talents and skills have to offer. And I just want to be able to be proud of it regardless of, you know, what sort of audience it ends up having. And you just have to trust that. And that's where I think all of us working on it were coming from was like, we really thought it was a great thing and we were super personally proud of it, but had no expectation. You know, when the thing first, I, I was just happy. My only goal really was to, have it be released that the entire time I was working on it. I just wanted the film to be released and to be completed, you know, and when it, so when it opened number one at the box office, <laughs> I was just floored. Yeah. I mean, you know, it got, it, it changed the conversation. It changed, it changed the zeitgeist. I mean, I just, it's one of those movies that there's a before and an after that's clearly defined mm-hmm. by the landing of that movie. Um, and your your music for it, I mean, I can't imagine how many different approaches you could have taken in terms of subverting expectations. What were those conversations like about creating the score? Um, it was from the first conversation with Jordan, he said, I want the African-American experience both metaphorically and literally in this score. I mean, that's, that's almost a direct quote. And we had a great conversation about what it, what makes music scary. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we seemed to be pretty much aligned on that. But then he, when he said, uh, talked about the African-American voice, mm-hmm. well, he didn't say African-American experience. He said the African-American voice, both metaphorically and literally in the film. Uh, and he, he also mentioned about how he said, you know, even so much the black music has, has this element of hope running through it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was such an a, a insightful thing to say. Just mm-hmm. really, I never thought about that. But even the blues, you know, there's there's an expectation underneath the sorrow and 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 a, a hope, you know. And he said, "But you've got to drain all the hope right out of it." That's why he brought that up. He said, "That's the part he doesn't want." So I said, "I, I think it it sounds like what you're talking about is gospel horror." And he said, yeah, and we, neither of us knew what that would sound like, but we liked that concept. So out of that, I wrote um, a couple demos, and one of them was Siki Lisa Kwawahenga, which became the main title of the movie. Mm. Um, and so beyond that, the other, the other aesthetic thing was that I, I, it's not a really a horror movie. It's a, it's a thriller. To mm. me, it's a suspense thriller. And so I was very much thinking of Bernard Herrmann and um, classic Hitchcock because the every every word in the Get Out script is, is it's a very tightly written script that re- every part of it is leading up to what it reveals and why. Mm-hmm. And so the score needed to say, I think, you know, this is um this is a this is a movie. This movie may have had a small budget, but this is a big movie. This is actually a classic movie. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that has a lot to say and will be studied. And so a score can say so much about a film that isn't set in words. Mm-hmm. And so the score needed to have a certain classic classic movie elegance to it. Mm-hmm. And that ended up being a lot of how the harmonies I chose and the harp and the strings, uh, it's, that's what it's communicating in the background of its, um, of its uh, uh, foreshadowing of what's to come. What... What are the lyrics? What do they mean? Oh, they mean, so they're in Swahili because um, they're supposed to be the voices of departed slaves and, uh, or, or departed, you know, victims of social injustice, lynching victims and things. 
Um, but they're, they're ghosts. And so ghosts don't speak to us in English. They speak to us in dreams and metaphors and things. And so uh, Swahili wasn't, I guess, the most predominant slave language I, I discovered, but it's a very musical language and I needed some, you know, some artistic license. So that's my license. But the, the words mean um, it's uh, brother, because that word needs no translation in any language. Um, brother, kimbia, which means run. Um, Sikiliza kwawahenga, listen to the ancestors. Uh, um, una kimbia mbali, run far away. Brother, brother, kimbia kua kua mwenyewe, which means save yourself. This is a warning. It's, it's Absolutely. A warning. It's, they're yeah. te- what they're doing is they're telling Chris, the main character, yeah. telling him, get out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get out is a is a ter- figure of speech. It wouldn't translate in Swahili, so <laughs> yeah. I was forced to not use those words literally. But that's what they're saying. Very interesting. I'm going to have to return to that now that I can fully understand the context. That's really interesting. Um, you have this uh, through line. I'm wondering if it's at all intentional. You know, from Get Out to Us to um, Alan V. Farrow, there's a play of identity in in a lot of these projects where there's who you are, then there's, with us, there's literal doppelgangers, um, and there's how you're perceived to be. Um, same as Alan B. Farrow. I'm wondering if that's something you're conscious of, or if it's just something I'm noticing. I, I think you're absolutely right when you point it out that way. Like, that, that is true. I... Um... It hasn't been fully conscious. I mean, what I what I have noticed is that you know I'm a I'm a mixed race person of many of, of some conflicting backgrounds, mm-hmm. uh, or what we would find to be conflicting from some traditional viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And people who are um, mixed in some way in their lives, whether that's you know ethnically or geographically or whatever you have some some code switching going on where you're sometimes of one world and sometimes of another. Mm-hmm. And you um, learn to make your peace with that, not to have that be an uncomfortable thing, but you just become comfortable and then that's how the world works. And so because of that, maybe I'm, I'm, maybe I feel at home in that sort of dichotomy or juxtaposition. Uh, but, but it's hard for me to say which one came first because mm-hmm so natural to me uh, um but that so i don't know if I, I i would like to think i feel comfortable without that being a a, a, them, a thematic thing but i really have not thought of it that way before so thank you for that that's it sure sure um yeah alan v farrow is is very in terms of identity and um narrative and the sort of suspense of it all. I mean, you're also dealing with something that's happened in uh, it, real people's lives. And then there's translating it to a screen. There's a lot, it's very rich and complex. How did you arrive at it, at this project? Well, so I was asked by the, um, the directors, uh, uh, Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering, uh to uh, score it. And they, and they're very passionate and they have I think they do wonderful, wonderful work. They did On the Record and a number of other documentaries prior to that. And so um, their take on, you know, I remember when this story of Alan versus Pharaoh was, uh, you know, 
front page news and, and in a very tabloidy way in the 90s. And to see it revisited after the Me Too movement mm. and to see all of that with a perspective of the 21st century was fascinating to me. I mean, I'm, I was legitimately fascinated in, you know, I watched the whole thing before I scored it and I, I was just so, found it just so interesting. So that was my, my, my primary interest. The secondary one was that it gave me a chance to do this thing that I do well, it leads back to what we were talking about before, where um, there were moments of, there are moments uh, of, um, first, there's, you know, there's a lot, it's a, it's a documentary, so there's a lot of talking and a lot of facts and a lot of, a lot of, you know, people with degrees telling us important information. And during that, the music has to give you a sense of forward motion to know that it's not just, you're not just in a college lecture that you're being given this information for a reason. So there's that component of music in it. Then there's a component of music where you hear a little girl talk about her experience of, uh, of something so, so intimate that shouldn't be, you know, just this tragic, really horrific thing. Mm-hmm. And yet it's reality. It's not a made up story like Get Out. Mm-hmm. So you have to score that in a way that's very respectful of, of the emotion that's already there and not, lead the audience in any way but simply honor the, the emotion that's already created mm-hmm. and then there's that that so that's a in an, another genre of music and then there's a third genre which is it actually begins as a love story and as a cla- like a really big hollywood romance between two famous people in new york the greatest city in the world you know <laughs> and so um and woody allen what is is absolutely um you know, he is the, he, he typifies or, or helped make that image of New York that we think of in the late 20th century. His films just epitomize what that is. And so there was an opportunity in moments where we're harking back to what that would be like for him to be dating Mia and having met her for the first time. There's a need for the music to be very romantic and old fashioned in the sort of Gershwin-y sense an old-fashioned new york in the mid 20th century so that was a whole nother genre of music so there are these three different um needs for the music in in the in the score and uh i think the piece needed a composer who could do all three of those things and then also make them feel like they belong together so those were my challenges and i to me i thought oh these are great you know this is a job for me i'm i'm at home with this this sort of world yeah i have to i have to re-emphasize and just say I think you really nailed it there's a sense of like driving urgency throughout great um which is you know the stakes are high let's be real right so um and you draw from so many different musical genres it's a it's a fascinating listen start to finish the album itself because you touch upon so much I mean with you know you have that beautiful melody and falling in love with the movie star as you said, Gershwin, it's very sweeping. And you're almost knowing the story, as I assume most people who watch this know. There's a bit of a trick that happens. You're sort of uh, enveloped or you're, you're drawn into this charisma and this beautiful energy of their story and, and your music. And then it, let's then, say just... Yeah, then things happen. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I think you really handled it incredibly well. I think it would have, it feels like it would have been very tricky. Mm, well, I, I, the filmmakers, you know, they w- were really good about 
they, I like, I was the new guy, you know, I actually, the first time I ever met Kirby and Amy, I said, what are the differences between scoring for documentaries versus film? Because I didn't want to go in thinking I knew the answer to that Yeah, (laughs) because I hadn't done it. Um, And they, you know, they were certainly able to give me the perspective of what it is they do because they're experts at it and they care very much about um, editorializing. And I mean, they think about that with every single shot choice they make about whether something's be, you know, journalistic or has a point of view and whether it, when it has a point of view or whether, when they allow a point of view to, you know, be, be articulated you know, how and why and whether that serves the project. And so I didn't always, because they're so conscious about it, I didn't have to take that on as my primary focus. But they, you know, they, all the cues are subject to their approval and they were very conscious of whether the music went too far in an emotion or was leading the audience or things like that. So um, there was a lot of that in making choices. But then also... um, it, you have to ultimately, I, I feel like when I'm scoring to picture, I'm kind of, I do it as an audience, sort of as an, I'm coming from my genuine emotion of watching as an audience member, but I'm also coming from, from just like the actors are so great at depicting characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to be, I want to be a musical actor. I want the emotion of the music to be as genuine as the, what you see on the screen. In the case of a documentary, you're you're seeing you are seeing genuine emotions. It's not an actor; it's a real person. When mm-hmm. Dylan says what she experienced, she you can tell that that's her experience, and she's being truthful. And so, um, I just I just try to empathize, and then write music that expresses that empathy for whoever the character is on screen, even if they're a talking head. You know, mm-hmm. they're coming from a point of view, and the the point of the music is to help the audience understand, you know, what the person's trying to communicate, whether they're um, some, some, someone with a PhD who's reporting what they observed or a little girl who is, you know, coming forward with something that happened. That's fascinating. I'm going to make a note, sonic empathy. That's, Mm -hmm. that's, I like that. Um, I'm very conscious of the time. Um, I'm going to just throw out some rapid fire questions if you don't mind. I know we've got only a couple minutes left. Um, the Composers Diversity Collective. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that project and the mission behind it? Yes. So uh, I'm a co-founder of the Composers Diversity Collective, which is a uh, nonprofit that is the, which has the mission of increasing visibility of composers of color um, in the entertainment industry. And uh, since, since as you mentioned, since Get Out and, and some other very films that came out, you know, Crazy Rich Asians and um, Coco and Black Panther. I mean, Hollywood has seen that diversity can be very good for the box office when it's done, when it's embraced and uh, flaunted, you know. Um, And so now in the industry, people, most people, I think, are saying we understand that inclusion is um, not only good for the soul, but good for our pocketbooks. And we, we want it, but we, uh, it used to be people would say, but we don't know anybody, you know, but now they say, and we know people, but they're working. <laughs> and so we don't have, still don't know, have anybody we can call. So the Composers Diversity Collective is there to say, hey, over here, let us fill up your contact list with lots of composers from every part of the planet and, um, and ethnicity and gender and uh, let us help you 
demonstrate that inclusion is good for the soul and for the box office. So, great, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, and it sounds like it's a a an immediate filter that someone can go to for just great yeah, artists. A wonderful website at composersdiversitycollective.org. So I encourage everyone who is looking for uh, diverse voices to go there and check us out. Two final questions quickly, um, if you don't mind. Uh, do you have a dream project in mind? Oh gosh, I I have I I tell people these days that I have the coolest problems. That's how <laughs> I my life. Uh, I wrote a I wrote a evening long piece for the Kronos Quartet and Choir that's going to be premiering in November called "At War with Ourselves," and um, that was definitely a, a passion project. I have co-written an opera with Rhiannon Giddens, who's this amazing um, roots and. Uh, I guess roots music artist is her category she's been placed in, but she's an amazing storyteller and singer and banjo player. And yeah, um, you know, she falls, she falls under the country, the very broad country genre, but it's, she is um, helping reclaim our history in a way that also involves her amazing songwriting. So that opens uh, next year, May at the Spoleto USA festival. And I just feel really blessed to, I, I hope to keep contributing in all these different genres as people continue to offer me the opportunity to do so. That's, those two just sound so different and so cool in different right? ways. I would, yeah, yeah. And I, I haven't even, I didn't even notice, I didn't even mention any films. Yeah. <laughs> those are also coming and they're, they're challenging me to do what I do. So I'm Great. so happy. Yeah. yeah, I can't wait to see you do space. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Absolutely. I really am. Um, last question. Um, it's just a thought experiment. I'm not particularly religious, but it's good to have uh, parameters. You get to, can be the pearly gates or purgatory, can be wherever you want. You're placed before, could be God, your judges, whomever it might be. You get to play one song. What is it? <laughs> oh my gosh. One song before God. Wow, what a setup question! <laughs> huh? Should I even play along with this? You don't have to. You answer it however you please. <laughs> I really think that. Well, I I love your your question's unfair, but I also yeah. I love your question because it goes to what is fair. I think it's like what your question is is like what what does what as an artist do you want to be remembered for? Is what your question is. Yeah. And so I get that out of when I see people performing my music and I see the joy that it gives them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I hear it, I mean, I write music, even the most horrible music (laughs) 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 that Jordan Peele and other people forced me to write (laughs) this horrible music. Um, Music is written for, you know, I don't, I mean, I play the piano some, you know, I mean, I play the piano, but I'm not a performer. Um, I I just make blueprints of music. I'm like an architect that, um, you know, architects, unless they're, you know, but architects in the purest art form, they just make blueprints of what a building would look like if you were going to make a building. Mm -hmm. And the people who make the building, like the musicians are the people who take my blueprints and make them the thing that you, that they're supposed to be. 
And those musicians bring their souls and their lives and their interests to that music. And so I write music that I want musicians to enjoy playing. And I talk to young composers about how, you know, music can be really hard. Musicians want to be challenged, but if it doesn't sound like it's hard, it's a waste of time because nobody wants to do something that's really hard and have people go, okay, very nice. Like that, that has to create an impression. And so it's, it's, it's intrinsic to music. So therefore I would go to the pearly gates and I would show, I would show whoever examples of musicians enjoying and really, you know, taking music I've written and taking it to the highest level. Because I think as a composer, that's what you're meant to do. Yeah, they're breathing life into it. Um, thank you so much, Michael. I could talk to you for hours. I find you to be very fascinating in your whole approach. I mean, there's no one quite like you. And I thank you for everything that you've done. Um, yeah, well, hopefully we'll speak soon. Hopefully. This has been a total pleasure. Thank you so much, Alon.